Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. That's E-R-R-A-T-A. Okay, so tonight we're going to do kind of a whirlwind tour of uh, ancient prehistory and up to around the time of uh, Stonehenge and the early Americas. Uh, And so I did want to do a little bit about some things that have kind of generally happened in the last couple of years in some of these areas, but including uh, the far prehistory. So we're going to start off with dinosaurs, uh, because who doesn't like talking about dinosaurs? Uh, So we are going to travel very far back in time. Uh, So if you aren't aware, the dinosaurs lived on Earth for a very long time. 179 million years, give or take. Now, contrast that to humans who have been around for mm, 300,000 years or so, I believe I I, I noted. Um, and so, yeah, we again, uh, you know, I'm sure that you've heard this before, that humans are kind of a blink of an eye when it comes to the history of the Earth. And I was actually just watching um, at one point a um, a Nova documentary. There's a Nova documentary out there that I've that I've watched, uh, which talks about the origins of life and how, um, in this case, how minerals were actually really important to that process. And they basically suggest that life uh, began on Earth very very early. Um, they certainly don't have the first fossils uh, or the, they can't tell exactly when it started because we don't have fossils back that far. Uh, but we do have stromatolites that are extremely old. Um, we're talking in the billion year range, I believe. And so we do know that Earth had life very early. But of course, it took a very long time to go from those sort of single-celled organisms, buildings, dramatolites, which are basically, uh, they're kind of like coral, only they're more uh, just like a giant sort of pillory, uh, a big pillar kind of a thing, or more like a stool, I would say. (laughs) Um, There's actually one place in Australia where they still grow, uh, where they're still being created. And that's pretty amazing to find that this, uh, you know, organism that we know was around at the very beginnings of uh, life on Earth, there's still an ancient descendant of it growing somewhere today is pretty mind-blowing, I think. Uh, And so, yeah. Um, But it did take a long time to get to actual, you know, the kind of organisms that we think about today. And so we are going to talk first about the Mesozoic era, and that is divided into the three classic periods of the dinosaurs, which is the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. Now, Again, this is a huge amount of time, and it includes the breakup of the supercontinent of Pangaea, uh, 
eventually almost leading to the continents that we now know. Uh, so it takes a little bit longer in geological time to get to what we know as the continents today, but um, definitely it is headed that way by the end of the Cretaceous. Now, Pangaea first divided into two main sections, uh, Laurasia in the north and Gondwana in the south. And uh, amongst that uh, breaking up of the supercontinent, the uh, North Atlantic Ocean formed. Uh, and so during the early Jurassic, there were land bridges that connected the two land masses, but they were more isolated during the late Jurassic and were pretty much separated by the Cretaceous. There was actually a massive wave of extinction that struck the Earth at the end of the Triassic. Scientists are still not quite sure what caused it. Uh, there is a lot of debate, as with any great extinction. Some people think it was an asteroid, much like at the end of the Cretaceous, uh, which killed off the dinosaurs. Some people think it was the amazing amount of volcanic activity that happened as the uh, supercontinent of Pangaea broke up. That is kind of the sort of uh, most mainstream idea, is that because there was this huge amount of uh, volcanic activity, it caused everything to become, um, you know, it caused climate change and all of these things. And so that is why there was a giant die-off. Chris, or even some people who suggested there really wasn't that big of a giant die-off and it was just a difference in uh, the sort of speciation and that kind of gets into the weeds though. Um, so basically what happened was that there was a loss of more than 50% of marine genera uh, and there was also a lot of the large animals that were on the land, they were wiped out and that made room for the dinosaurs. Uh, now, during the Triassic, the first, what we would consider the ancestors of mammals actually evolved. And also, uh, thing, it was basically just starting to get to be kind of the stuff that we know. During the Jurassic, ferns, horsetails, and forests of conifer trees, such as sequoias, flourished across the land. And actually, some of that vegetation became what is now the fossil fuels that we burn today. Dinosaurs like Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, and Brachiosaurus evolved during the Jurassic. This was also the beginning of the age of large sauropod herds. So those Apatosauruses and Brachiosaurus uh, would have been in giant herds, uh, much like you kind of saw in Jurassic Park. Uh, we're not going to talk too much about the whole issue of uh, Jurassic Park. A couple of things here and there, but uh, overall, I'm still a fan. I can't help it. I know that a lot of it's wildly inaccurate and takes great liberties, but um, I am still a fan of at least the classic Jurassic Park. The first one is still, you know, absolutely my favorite and still has a special place in my heart, even though I remember the time being so upset that they didn't put the um, the pterosaurs into that first movie. And I know that they did it later, but I remember being very, very upset because I wanted to see pterosaurs, darn it. Anyways, I digress. So um, basically what happened 
to the sauropods is they developed even more species and grew into larger scales in the Cretaceous. And that's where you have the real uh, titanosaurs is in the Cretaceous towards the end of the dinosaur era. Now, the oceans at this time would have been filled with ammonites, plesiosaurs, and ichthyosaurs, uh, which the latter two, despite having sores uh, in their name, were actually not related to land-dwelling dinosaurs. They were a different uh, branch of, uh, in the case of plesiosaurs, uh, reptiles, and I believe the ichthyosaurs are more related to fish, but I... uh, am drawing a blank on that at the moment, I apologize. But you can go and see a skeleton of an ichthyosaur at the uh, Geology Museum at Amherst College. I know that. I have seen it uh, on many an occasion, and they really are very interesting looking. They're kind of like dolphins, but with a really thin beak, uh, sort of like mm, uh, there are well, at least there used to be some dolphins in various freshwater areas that had sort of long beaks like that. A lot of them are highly endangered now, but uh, the ichthyosaurs would have looked kind of like dolphins in a vague sense. (laughs) Um, And so the Cretaceous saw the land masses separate further apart, which is why we have a much greater speciation during that sort of last epoch of the dinosaurs range uh, or reign on Earth, I should say. And including that would have been the now infamous Velociraptors. They would have flourished during the late Cretaceous. Now, uh, I will go into this a tiny bit because it is something that I think that is important to remember. uh, And it is the one nitpick that I do like to talk about when it comes to Jurassic Park. So velociraptors were more likely the size of turkeys rather than uh, humans. And of course, they would have been covered in protofeathers. Now, this doesn't discount the fact that those raptors in uh, Jurassic Park would have been actually potentially a species that did exist. It would have actually been more closely related to Dionychus. Um, And so Dionychus was pretty much the size of a human and was very much a raptor. Uh, but of course, it would have still been covered in protofeathers. <laughs> Anyways, this is also the period where you would have found the Tyrannosaurus rex. Now, the Cretaceous was where we see the first flowering plants. And in addition, uh, during the Cretaceous period, Europe was often covered by seas. Uh, the white cliffs of Dover and other chalk deposits were created during this period as single-celled algae, uh, diatoms, died and fell to the bottom of the ocean, forming calcium-rich sediments. And so at this point, because of the rise and fall in sea level, there would have also been a great inland sea in the middle of the Americas. And you can actually see um, there was a deposit found a couple of years ago now, uh, wherein you can actually find deposits that had been washed up by the waves that had traveled all the way inland during the time when the crater impacted at Chicxulub, they actually found layers of built-up sediment with 
fossils in them from waves that would have propagated all the way from uh, the Gulf of Mexico all the way up into what is now, I think, the, either the Dakotas or um, Montana. I'm not sure which one, but I think it was the Dakotas. And that's just crazy, absolutely crazy. And uh, so the Cretaceous actually derives from the Latin word for chalk, which is creta. And so, yeah, it was definitely a big time. The Cretaceous is kind of where things take off. So you have the first flowering plants. You actually have what would be the first primates uh, evolved during the Cretaceous. And so, yeah, it was a very big time. A lot of changes were going on. Now, one of the things that is very cool is that new species of dinosaurs continue to be discovered, including Egentia prima, which is a large four-legged long-necked dinosaur that lived in the late Triassic and represents an important link to the development of giant sauropods that dominated during the Jurassic later on. Now, Ingentia prima was discovered in Argentina. The name actually means the first to be huge in Latin. And so the partial skeleton consists of several neck vertebrae, a shoulder bone, and several bones from the legs and tail. The specimen was discovered and described by Cecilia Apeldenton and her team from the National University of San Juan. Now, what they did was they compared the new fossil to three new specimens of a previously known species called Lesimosaurus seropodes. Now, the analysis showed that I-prima weighed between 7 and 10 tons. Now, in order to give you sort of a actual idea of what that means, the largest African elephants weigh between six and seven tons. So slightly larger than the largest elephants, uh, which is pretty big for uh, the late Triassic. The animals, uh, sorry, dinosaurs were still pretty small in the Triassic for the most part. Uh, They weren't the huge behemoths that would develop in the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. Uh, And so the analysis showed that it had already developed an elongated neck and a long tail, uh, though not obviously not as long and fabulous as its later relatives. Whereas I, Sarapodes, stood on bent knees with their bones thickened by rapid bursts rather than an accelerated but steady growth, I prima shows signs that this accelerated growth rate and straight legs capable of supporting a huge amount of weight. Now, I prima also sported a bird-like cervical air sac and a neck with a high surface-to-volume ratio, and those would have been really important uh, for temperature regulation. So it basically acts like air conditioning. Uh, in order to keep this huge animal cool. And it also developed structures in the backbones and hind limbs that would have been essential to carrying its weight across the Triassic landscape. This reveals that the first pulse toward gigantism in dinosaurs occurred over 30 million years before the appearance of the first true sauropods, write the researchers in their study. Now, those true sauropods had some amazing talents for developing into their adult form. 
a baby titanosaur fossil discovered in Madagascar in 2016 showed that the animals developed very quickly. The Raptosaurus crausii baby, which most likely died of starvation, unfortunately, was around 14 inches long. Analysis by paleontologist Christina Curry-Rogers and colleagues showed that the dinosaur would have been between 40 and 77 days old when it died, but that it would have already resembled basically an adult version of the species. It suggests that these animals would have been able to move independently immediately after birth and wouldn't have required adult supervision, unlike other dinosaur groups such as theropods and ornithischians, um, which we know required parental care to survive and grow uh, towards adulthood in those first uh, weeks, months, and possibly even years of their life. We do know for for certain that there were uh, dinosaur species, especially in the theropods and the ornithischians, where we can show that there was parental care of uh, newly born offspring. Now, the specimen would have weighed around 7.5 pounds when it hatched, but within just a few weeks, it would have ballooned to a crazy 88 pounds. <laughs> and so that is pretty spectacular. And so these sauropods were just growing like gangbusters, which, you know, makes sense considering the fact that in order to become the ridiculously huge animals they would as adults, it makes sense that they would start pretty quickly as soon as they were hatched to really start to pack on those pounds and really have those uh, crazy growth uh, levels that allowed them to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and so, yeah, they were pretty huge. And um, I just, it's just so amazing to think about all of these crazy, amazing animals that lived so long ago. And it would be really great if we could see them, but not in the way that Jurassic Park uh, is. Uh, I think that Jurassic Park has a very good message to say about how we shouldn't do things like that because we don't know what on earth will happen. Okay, so moving on. I do have to admit that I do find a great amount of pleasure in the fact that people get very upset about the fact that Pluto was demoted as a planet. Um, I don't know why I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. But I really, I'm just like, it, it's not a planet. Like, that's not a huge deal. Just, just accept it and move on. But people are still very upset. Well, here's some good news from the uh, land of science and uh, terminology. So uh, in the last few years, there has been a reversal of something that honestly, you may never have even heard about, uh, but I certainly had heard about it. And so for several, for several years, or actually for several decades, it was thought that the Brontosaurus, one of the most well-known sauropods, at least from my childhood and probably from yours, was actually not an, its own species. And so what turns, what it happened was that one of the fathers of American paleontology, uh, 
Othniel Charles Marsh, discovered the first brontosaurus skeleton in 1879. It's actually still on display at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. I actually went there probably around 10 years ago now and saw it. However, in 1903, paleontologist Elmer Riggs decided that the brontosaurus was actually the same as another species that Marsh had described, uh, the Apatosaurus. And Marsh had actually described that back in 1877, two years earlier. And because the older name takes precedent, precedence in these sorts of scientific situations, technically brontosauruses cease to be a dinosaur. However, again, the general public has never seemed to have been given this bit of vital, uh, uh, or not so vital, I should say, information, uh, at least until much later, because I know that I certainly didn't hear about it in my childhood, but heard about it uh, probably 15 years ago or so. Now, again, if you've never heard of this controversy at all, don't worry, because a new analysis in 2015 by Emmanuel Schopp a vertebrate paleontologist at the New University of Lisbon in Portugal, suggests that it really is distinct. So his detailed study suggests that there is sufficient difference between the two species to consider them, again, distinct. Now, Schopp stated that such an undertaking would not have been possible in previous decades because of the lack of similar fossils to use in the comparison. The work suggests that there was a large amount of variety amongst the giant sauropods. The late Jurassic of North America, in which they lived, may have been a weird time, noted Matthew Waddell, a vertebrate paleontologist at Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona, California. Um, and he wasn't in involved in the original study, but you know, they asked him to comment on this. You basically had an explosion of these things in what could be harsh environments, which raises the question of how they could have found enough food to have supported them all. So, of course, as with much in science, new discoveries lead to new questions. Now, on the topic of there being kind of a disconnect between public understanding and uh, professional understanding of these things, it's not really surprising that the public might have continued to blissfully enjoy the fact that Brontosaurus means thunder lizard and uh, it's very cool, uh, <laughs> even though paleontologists had basically abandoned it. One of the other ones that is always a problem, and I'm sure I've mentioned it on the show before, is the fact that dinosaur figures often come with a figure of a dimetrodon, which is not a dinosaur. It is a synapsid who would have roamed during the Permian uh, era, which is before the Mesozoic. So before the Triassic, absolutely before the age of dinosaurs. Now, synapsid is a clade that includes what were once referred to as mammal-like reptiles, including dimetrodon and mammals. Now, we no longer refer to dimetrodon and other early synapsids as reptiles because it doesn't properly describe them. The clade sarapsida includes reptiles, dinosaurs, and birds. And so those two form subclades of the clade of the clade amniotes, 
And so, of course, amniotes are tetrapods, which feature eggs that are either carried within the body of the mother or laid and which contain an amniotic sac, uh, which surrounds the embryo. So the amniotic sac is what makes them amniotes. Now, Dimetrodon, with its characteristic sail, would actually almost certainly have been cold-blooded. But it is the presence of its teeth that could chew and the structure of its jaw, as well as a temporal fenestra, which is a small opening in the skull behind the eye socket, which is usually covered with membrane, that makes it animal, um, makes it mammal-like. Because Dimetrodon features both canines and shearing teeth, it may have had an omnivorous diet. Now, recent finds suggest that the first true placental mammals arrived on the scene as early as the late Jurassic. Teeth found in England of early eutherians, which is the group that eventually led to the true placental mammals, suggest that they were already evolving at this point. Now, the issue for paleontologists has been a lack of fossil specimens, again. Uh, that's something that, you know, is very important to all of this, which is that uh, there is a huge problem with the idea of uh, fossils. Or not, I shouldn't say with the idea of fossils, that there's a huge issue with fossils, which is that we don't have a lot of them. Um, and so that's a real problem because even though it may seem like we have millions and millions of fossils, think about how many animals lived and died on this earth in the last, you know, 100 million years, uh, and think about how many fossils that would represent if everything fossilized. And so that is also the part problem with, uh, as we will find later, with hominid skeletons or uh, fossil remains, that we don't have many of them because they didn't fossilize because fossilization is actually a sort of very serendipitous thing that happens to a small, small proportion of animals. That doesn't mean that we can't tell anything about what happened in the past. We can certainly tell a lot, but it means that there is a lot of may have beens and indicates and, you know, words like that when talking about fossils because we just, we can't know exactly what was going on. And so I think it's very important to note that, that scientists are well aware that, you know, we can't tell everything. However, we can, of course, tell many things. Uh, so for instance, we can absolutely know that things like the earth is only 6,000 years old, are incorrect. <laughs> uh, you know, people who believe that uh, should probably note that, you know, Egypt by 6,000 years ago was already a uh, well-established and old civilization. So yeah, things like that, we can tell. We don't even need fossils for that. Um, and we can also tell that things have evolved. We have a sufficient amount of fossils to show clear evolutionary trees. And of course, genetics has completely and utterly supported that idea. And so we absolutely can prove that evolution is a thing. We can prove that we can see sort of the development of things 
as they go along, but especially when you get into these really old species, it is kind of murky because a lot of this stuff just isn't there. Um, you know, the the further you go in time, the it gets a little bit better in the fossil record. So like the Cretaceous has more fossils than some of the other um, eras, I believe. But yeah, I mean, there is still a lot of gaps. So anyways, getting back to uh, these early uh, mammal uh, ancestors. So the issue for paleontologists, again, has been the lack of fossil specimens. Our fossils are definitely of the oldest Eurythrians known yet in the fossil record, Stephen Sweetman, lead author and a paleontologist at the University of Portsmouth in England, notes. They lie at the base of the branch of the tree that led to placentals and therefore us. Now, previously, a fossil found in China called Jeremiah was considered the oldest Eurythrian, but actually subsequent studies showed that it was almost certainly not a member of that group. Now, the teeth came from the fossil-rich cliffs of Dorset on the southern coast of England, uh, which are those cliffs that we talked about that were created during um, the later periods of the uh, Jurassic especially. And uh, so when basically Europe was underwater, and of course, this is the same uh, sort of Dorset cliffs of uh, chalk where the famous Mary Anning would have made her remarkable studies. So very cool. All right, we are going to take a break. And then when we come back, we are going to zoom forward in time uh, and talk about sort of the basics of some of the more recent discoveries in uh, the origin of humans and other homo species. So hang on for just a minute. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation, up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? 
Well, over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. You. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash STDs often have no symptoms, but if left untreated, they can lead to serious health problems, especially for young women. Every year in the U.S., about 24,000 women become infertile from untreated STDs, which means they may never be able to have kids. It's important to get tested regularly. All STDs are treatable. Many are curable. GYT, get yourself tested. Go to GYTnow.org to find a testing center near you. A message from CDC. Are you interested in connecting with the international community in the Pioneer Valley? Then volunteer to help your immigrant neighbors improve their English and integrate better into their surroundings. Become a volunteer tutor. Take a free 15-hour training taught by the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. For more details on an application, go to ili.edu or contact Amy at ili.edu. Students come from Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. So volunteer to tutor and expand your world. Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. Join me, DJ Vinyl Scratch, on the warm heart of Africa. From Cape Town to the Congo, Marrakesh to Mogadishu, and to the New World and beyond, we explore the best in pop music from Africa and the Afro diaspora all across the globe. Once again, that's 7 to 9 p.m. every Wednesday, only on Valley Free Radio. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen... High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, we are back. And again, we are going to zoom forward in time uh, and turn to the origin of uh, various forms of Homo. So there's Homo sapiens, which is what we are, but there are a bunch of other Homo uh, lineages, such as Homo habilis, uh, Homo erectus, things like that. And so, of course, it is still uh, pretty a pretty interesting mystery as to how we eventually became the sole species of Homo on the planet. So, uh, for instance, there is Homo neanderthalis, which we uh, somehow managed to outcompete, or I don't know, it's 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 still unclear how we managed to become the only species of uh, sort of large-brained, uh, naked uh primates on the planet and so yeah it's just it is a really mind-blowing thing which is why I'm kind of a little bit uh having a moment because I always it is one of those things that kind of really 
really fascinates me is how did we manage it? I don't know. And so again, not only do uh, some people have traces of Neanderthal DNA, there's actually another group, the Denisovans, uh, that some people have DNA from. And in fact, uh, I talked at one point about um, people in the Himalayas who actually Um, actually, I don't think I did. I watched another episode of Nova. I've been watching Nova's uh, in the last couple of months. And there was one about uh, people in the Himalayas, and they actually get one of their genes that helps them to breathe in high altitudes from uh, the Denisovans. So they actually got that from them. And so that is like very cool that they, they can actually show that that gene that helped them uh, to be able to really survive and thrive at these incredible high altitudes where there's not very much oxygen actually comes to them from Denisovans. And there's actually another as yet unidentified uh, trace in some people's DNA of another archaic homo species. Now, a commentary published in the journal Trends in ecology and evolution has actually suggested that there is no one origin point for the evolution of Homo sapiens, but rather that isolated groups of uh, different populations from across Africa would occasionally meet and interbreed, and that this action eventually led to what we now consider to be uh, genetically Homo sapiens. Uh, the ones that are our direct ancestors. Now, this new view was posited by a team led by Eleanor Skerry from Oxford's School of Archaeology. And what it did was it took an interdisciplinary look at the latest archaeological, fossil, genetic, and environmental evidence. The idea that humans emerged from one population and progressed in a simple, linear fashion to a modern physical appearance is attractive, but unfortunately no longer a very good fit with the available information, uh, she notes. Instead, it looks very much like humans emerged within a complex set of populations that were scattered across Africa. Now, when looking at this evidence holistically, it suggests that there was a wide variety of human ancestors that would have been separated by environments and geography um, and by climate. And so they basically would have come together occasionally uh, and separated again and then come back together. And that eventually sort of the best traits of all of these populations uh, continued to move into the gene pool of the population and that true Homo sapiens emerged around 300,000 years ago. Uh, but that even even though we basically were, were true Homo sapiens at that point, some characteristics that we associate with our species actually evolved later. Um, so there were... Um, the, the things such as a round brain case, pronounced chin, and small face uh, emerged later. So um, they actually, they emerged in different species, but not all together um, is what it is. So they didn't emerge in a single individual until uh, no more than 100,000 years ago, and possibly not even till as late as 40,000 years ago. 
Now, remains from between 300,000 and 250,000 years ago actually come from opposite ends of the continent, uh, from the tip of South Africa to the northernmost point. But they are found with sophisticated archaeological remains, such as specialized tools using different bindings and glues. They show up around the same time across the continent, even though the genetic makeup of the population suggests that they were diverse. So basically, you had people who were uh, genetically diverse, but were pretty uh, even on their uh signs of having developed sort of tools and things like that. And so what they did was they studied shifts in the topography of the continent and showed how different populations were able to reunite and separate again and again. The most surprising aspect of our research is that for most of our prehistory, human populations were largely isolated from each other, uh, Scary told the website Gizmodo. This is very different from how people live today and in the recent past. The effect of agriculture has had a phenomenal effect on how we live, allowing overall human population size to become huge and creating the conditions for very different types of interactions uh, because we became tied to the land. So that is very cool. So there is this real shift. I mean, we know that there's a huge shift when we turn to agriculture. Uh, in some ways, we actually arguments can be made that agricultural uh, civilization was actually bad for us. <laughs> so uh, for a long time, we actually were more prone to disease and, uh, you know, living in populations that were more contained, there were more people to pass genes around, um, sorry, diseases around to, also living with uh, domestic animals, they were able to sort of pass back and forth diseases between the animals that they were uh, domesticating and themselves. So there's all sorts of things to say about like, you know, early civilization not having been great for humans, but you know, it did eventually lead to uh, our uh, our civilization, which, you know, the, the jury is still out on, but <laughs> uh, we certainly do have a longer uh, lifespan and a much more uh, comfy and cozy uh, existence than our ancestors did even, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. So there is something to be said for kind of the uh, revolution in technology and things like that, that have really helped modern humans to uh, have a good lifespan and to really be able to live comfortably in a way that, you know, these hominids would have literally never been able to dream of, literally. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, but there continue to be real interesting questions about how these early species uh, lived, how they um, diversified, and how they traveled. And so recent finds in China show that at 2.1 million years ago, hominids may have already been established in East Asia. Now, previous research had suggested that hominids left Asia, uh, left Africa, I should say, around 1.85 million years ago and arrived in Asia. And so those are um, 
1.85 million years ago is actually the age of uh, remains found in Demansi, which is in Georgia, uh, which is not Georgia here, but Georgia in the Caucasus Mountains um, of uh, West Western Europe slash uh, uh, Western Asia. Um, I should say Eastern Europe slash Western Asia. And so the oldest hominid remains from East Asia had been two incisors from Southwest China that were dated to around 1.7 million years ago. But these new remains, which were found between 2004 and 2017 at a site called Shangchen in central China, suggest that hominids reached East Asia much earlier. So a team of Chinese and British geologists and archaeologists led by Zhao Yuzhu at the Guangzhou Institute of Geochemistry uh, and the Chinese Academy of Sciences have found ancient soils and deposits of windblown dust, along with simple stone tools that date from between 1.26 million years ago and 2.12 million years ago. Now, there may even be layers beneath that that are older. However, they're currently inaccessible because this is actually a site where active farming is going on. Uh, But in all, 96 stone tools were excavated, uh, mostly small stone flakes and cobbles, which are markedly different from the surrounding rock. The larger tools consisted of palm-sized rock cores with a limited number of flakes removed. The flakes show signs of sub- subsequent resharpening. Several of the cobbles may have been used as hammerstones. Now, uh, there were animal remains found near the oldest tunes, t- tools, uh, including those of bovids, which includes antelopes and cattle, uh, as well as deer and pigs. However, the researchers did not report that they had examined the remains for the characteristic marks of tool use. The deposit was dated using a method called paleomagnetism, which uses a known chronology of uh, basically reversals in the Earth's magnetic field to date rocks that are found between those reversal events. The pattern of polarity reversals found in the ancient sediment layers provides a unique map which can be compared to the reference timeline referred to as the geomagnetic polarity timescale. So Jan-Peter Bailart, a geologist at Aarhus University in Denmark, who has worked on the sediments in this region of China, calls the dating quote-unquote robust. In addition, archaeologists are confident that the tools are actually tools and not just random splintered rocks. Now, they suspect that the stone tools used the stone used to make the tools was actually from the Kingling Mountains to the south. And since they haven't found any scrap that really goes into uh, those tools found, they suspect possibly that the tools were actually made somewhere else and brought there. Uh, but of course, because they can't excavate the entire site, they might, have fi- they might find things in the future that would suggest that they were being created there. So Robin Donnell, an archaeologist at the University of Exeter in UK, says that his team ruled out potential natural explanations for the rock's appearance, such as a churning river. The tools were also noted to be the only large rocks in the area. Now, again, unfortunately, no remains of any uh, 
primates at all <laughs> uh, were found in association with the tools. We would all love to find a hominin, uh, preferably one with a tool in its hand, said Donnell. <laughs> now, it's clear, though, that these represent an early lineage, perhaps Homo erectus, uh, which means upright man, uh, but more likely Homo habilis. And so it could even technically have been uh, Australopithecus, which is an ape-like hominid, of which the most famous example is the uh, fossil remains of Lucy. But that's kind of an outside uh, suggestion. Now, whatever species it is, it is absolutely amazing that hominids were able to cover such a vast distance so far in the past. Shang Cheng is around 8,700 miles away from the nearest sites in East Africa where hominids of this age have been discovered. However, by looking at today's hunter-gatherers, the distance actually could have been covered in just uh, 1,000 to 3,000 years, depending on how fast they traveled. But of course, remember, that's based on uh, modern humans of which these were clearly not. These were clearly a uh, earlier uh, species than Homo sapiens. And of course, that's one of the interesting things is that not only uh, did these older uh, species of uh, Homo, Homo habilis, Homo uh, erectus, and things like that, they actually left Africa and they went into other parts. They went into Europe and they went into um, the other areas. They went into Asia. And yet at some point, we only end up with Homo sapiens. And it's just, it's, it's still an incredible mystery. And maybe someday we'll figure out why, and maybe we never will. But uh, that is the cool thing about science is that there are always new questions to ask and to solve, at least hopefully. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, they're hoping that further finds in the area might give researchers a better idea of just what species created the tools and what the earliest date of habitation at the site was. Hominid species actually began to use tools uh, somewhere around 3.3 million years ago, uh, maybe even as early as uh, 2.8 million years ago, but probably around uh, 3 million years ago, definitely. Fossil finds, of course, are very rare. Uh, and so... One of the suggestions, though, for that is that there might have been smaller populations. And so when you have a small population, it's not very likely that you're going to get uh, fossil remains. But the tool deposits at the site suggest that the population at, at that site actually might have increased and decreased over uh, the years due to climate changes. Now, another recent set of research on human origins was considering the use of the hand and how it evolved to be so dexterous. Now, while it's obvious that stone tool use was an important part of this equation, uh, with the first major group to use stone tools being Homo habilis, uh, which stands for handyman. Uh, <laughs> and so researchers at Chatham University and the University of Kent have suggested that smashing animal bones to access their marrow may have played an outsized role in the development of dexterity. Now, speaking of tool use, the researchers noted that these behaviors all evolved at different 
all involved different materials, different end goals, and different patterns of force and motion for the upper limb. Therefore, it is unlikely that each behavior exerted equal influence on the evolution of the modern human hand. Now, bone marrow would have been an important source of high-energy food. The researchers suggest that hominids that developed dexterous hands, which could free the marrow from animal bone, would have been better equipped to survive the harsh conditions of prehistoric survival and thus pass their genes for dexterous hands down to their descendants. They tested their hypothesis by asking 39 volunteers to don a manual pressure sensor system called appliance. And then they basically had them do things like crack nuts, uh, actually use hammer stones to get at bone marrow, and uh, do flint mapping. And what they found was that the largest amount of pressure was involved in the hammering of bones to free marrow. Uh, And the least amount was that used in cracking nuts. And they suggest that this is why uh, perhaps non-human primates can crack nuts even though they don't have human hands. And so they actually have hands with longer um, or with shorter thumbs and longer fingers than we do, which are better um, meant for using uh, or for ambulating in trees. And so, yeah, it is very interesting that that might be one of the reasons why uh, we are able to Uh, use our hands so dexterously was to get at that really awesome uh, fuel in those bones. All right. So, um, oh, actually, uh, there is one really cool thing that uh, recently there was actually a uh, sighting in Panama of capuchin monkeys using stone tools to smash small uh, shellfish say that three times fast. (laughs) And so that actually was the fourth instance of a uh, primate that is able to use uh, tools. Because of course, we know that apes, for instance, use tools, they use uh, sticks to get at ants, and they use stones as well. And so things like that. But we were able to kind of go to the next level with that. Now, uh, we definitely want to move forward another chunk in time and talk about a couple of other things. And so, as I'm always saying, our ancestors were very, very cool, and they did amazing things. So uh, excavations at the Galt site, an archaeological dig around 40 miles from Austin, Texas, has found a range of stone artifacts which showed that ancient people inhabited the site between 16,700 and 21,700 years ago. This is several thousand years before the Clovis people, who were once thought to be the earliest inhabitants of the Americas. A team led by archaeologist Thomas Williams of Texas State University at San Marcos analyzed 184 artifacts, which included 11 spear points that are unique and do not seem to have been from any other, found at any other site. Uh, Williams's team used a really interesting dating method called um, or that uses, uh, analyzes the sediment containing the artifacts and sh- and looks at when they were last exposed to sunlight, which is very cool. Now, interestingly, uh, tools from the Clovis people have actually also been found at Galt, uh, dating to roughly 13,000 years, but these new tools are actually uh, very clearly from a separate tool-making tradition. 
And so, of course, this is just another brick in the sort of wall of evidence about how people have arrived in the Americas much earlier than we once thought. Uh, there's still debate, of course, about how they got there, um, but we continue to find these new things. Okay. And so then quickly, we just want to talk about uh, Stonehenge for a minute. And so there are four uh, skeletons that have been excavated and were uh, analyzed at Stonehenge recently. And so they've found some really interesting things. For instance, there was a man who came from Central Europe, uh, and he apparently in Central Europe was not doing so well. He suffered anemia so severe that it actually left marks in his bone bones. Um, but once he got to England, he was more well-fed. However, he still seems to have been an outsider at the time that he died. He was actually found uh, in a uh, grave with another man who was around 40 who died at the same time as him, or roughly the same time as him. And uh, basically, they were, uh, they might have been friends, we don't know yet, but they were found uh buried in a sort of a uh, boundary place. And so they suggest that that meant that they were uh, outsiders. They also weren't cremated, which is what most people were at the time. So it's very interesting. Uh, so um, Professor Brian May notes or sorry, Simon May of the conservation group Historical England noted that they were sufficiently removed from most others in Middle Bronze Age society that they merited this fundamental difference in mortuary treatment. Uh, we know that they were both highly mobile, so they were both probably uh, sort of uh, walking around the uh, landscape a lot. The older man uh, most likely came from Ireland and... So they also found a baby, um, which was buried in a boundary ditch as well. Um, and they found a man who lived around 1500 years earlier, uh, who might have, um, who probably also was, was from Ireland and, uh, much of his food would have come from heavily wooded areas. Though later in life, he ate pig, freshwater fish, and hazelnuts. A monument undergoing active construction or alteration may not have been the only pull factor drawing people to this landscape in later prehistory, the science scientists concluded. Uh, it might have been also that this was becoming kind of the center of uh, Bronze Age and early or late um, Neolithic times. It might have been coming, becoming a real center of uh, civilization. So it's really interesting. And of course, it all goes back to my strong belief that we need to remember that these people were complex humans with complex societies and technologies. So yeah. Okay. That is all for tonight. Uh, I will be back next week. Goodbye.